Hello everyone, welcome to Undercover Influencer. This week's episode is a little different. How often do you get to interview someone who worked on the Saturn V program, the Shuttle program, and the Hubble program? Jim Odom worked on all three. He's a legend at NASA and just a really cool guy. Jim's resume is too in-depth for me to cover on this short introduction. He's had a part in so much of NASA's long history and still, today, is helping shape the future of space travel. Because of Jim's wealth of knowledge about these three programs, this episode is going to feel a little more like a documentary than a practical how-to guide, but there are still a lot of nuggets of wisdom woven throughout this narrative that I hope you won't miss. So, I hope you enjoy this conversation with NASA rocket engineer, Mr. Jim Odom. Mr. Jim Odom, thank you so much for sitting down with me today to chat about your story with NASA and the things that you did while you were there. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. So can you tell me a little bit about how you ended up mm -hmm. working for NASA? Yeah, let me give you just a little background. Uh, my wife and I grew up in a little town called McKenzie, Alabama. It's a little town about 65 miles south of, of Montgomery. Uh, very small town. We both grew up on a farm. But we had excellent teachers all through our grammar school and high school. Now, our high school graduating class had all a total of 19. Mm. And it, so she and I made up a significant percentage. But uh, she went on to uh, St. Margaret's uh, Nursing School in Montgomery. She wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to be an engineer. And uh, I could go to Troy State. They had a pre-engineering course that they worked with Auburn. So I could go there my first two years, and, and it was only about 50 miles from home. So I could work on the farm on the weekends. So I went to Troy, and after two years, went to Auburn to, uh, to finish. Uh, we were married uh, my senior year at Auburn, and uh, she was working at Lee County Hospital. She'd already graduated. And uh, uh, to, to answer your question, uh, kind of how I got to NASA, my, the first step, uh, I was uh, interviewing companies were coming through and I'd interviewed a number of companies and I'd about to lock in on one to work on an oil rig out in West Texas. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, my wife was working with a fellow called Dr. Pistol Howell from Decatur, and he was doing his OBGYN residency in Lee County Hospital where my wife was working. And uh, he heard, she said something about I was interviewing for a job, and he said, y'all need to move to Decatur. And I'd been through Decatur as a kid on vacations, but that's all I knew about it. And oddly enough, five days later, Kim Strand came through interviewing that was based in Decatur and made me a very good offer, and I ended up taking it and moving to Decatur. Hmm. I probably would have never come to Decatur had it not been for that one guy. And uh, so we moved to Decatur. And I worked at Chemstrand for six months and was drafted. At that time, the Korean War was still underway. And uh, I finished up my basic training, and I was back home. I was assigned to an engineering battalion in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, in the Army. And uh, the lady that we were renting an apartment from, her son was Brad Cartwright. And he, uh, when I came home, for after basic training, before my first assignment, he said, would you like to work, come to work in Huntsville? And I said, well, certainly. I, 
And at that time, Jerome Darris and Dr. Von Braun had their call on any engineer or physicist or chemist uh, in the Army. They could get them to come. So I said, very definitely, I would love to. So to make a long story short, I was when I got to report to Louisville, Kentucky, I already had orders there to come back to Huntsville. So I never planned to work for the government. I, I have a degree in mechanical engineering. I kind of wanted to build a better diesel engine. Mm -hmm. That was kind of mm -hmm. my thing. My dad had a garage, and I worked on engines all my life on, on the farm. And uh, I never intended to work for the government, but uh, I spent the rest of my two years, almost two years, working on the Von Braun team in Huntsville. And when uh, my time was up, I kind of got to liking working on rockets. And uh, so I ended up staying there for the next 50 years <laughs> that in, in the government. But my point is, we can, uh, we think we can plan our lives, and to a degree, we can. Uh, but uh, a lot of times, God puts people uh, in our pathways that uh, that ends up changing our mind and setting us on a path that we never planned, and that certainly happened to me. Those two guys, without them, I would have never had the opportunity mm. uh, that I did. And I thank them. They're both deceased. And uh, But uh, I thank God for uh, giving me a, a life that could never be duplicated had I tried. Now you, you worked with Warner Von Braun pretty closely while you were working on the Saturn V project, correct? Absolutely. Can you tell me a little bit about working with him? He's such an interesting fellow. He you was know, the stories a neat, that I read about him. We could talk about him for two hours, but let me just give you a quick snapshot of the guy. He is a very smart guy. He's an excellent leader. He's a visionary. And uh, the uh, he was he was absolutely a master at running large technical jobs and uh, leading people, and he never criticized or degraded a person uh, for anything they did, either accidentally or things broke. And we'll talk about that more. But uh, he was a uh, was a remarkable guy. We were at, and during the Apollo program, I worked on the second stage of the Saturn V rocket, and our lo our contractor was in Los Angeles, and uh, we were having a lot of troubles. And uh, it was a 33 foot diameter liquid oxygen hydrogen stage, and it was the biggest LOX hydrogen stage we'd ever built, and uh, we we had our share of troubles, and. Uh, we were going out there one time to work on some problems, and uh, we were uh, on a, um, uh, a plane. It was uh, the Learjet had just come out, and he liked to fly. Yeah. And General Medeiros would love to fly. They would both go on a team trip together and swap out flying either the NASA plane or a leased plane. But we were on a, uh, a Learjet coming back and we were over Kansas and we were at about 41,000 feet and we came up on this giant anvil cloud and it's shaped just like an anvil. It's got kind of two pointed ends at the top and it got a big stream of air and clouds that go literally all the way to the ground 
And on the tail end of that, of the anvil cloud, is where the cold air and moisture circulates, and it circulates there until it creates, starts creating hail. And when the hail gets heavy enough, then it will, will fall out. And uh, he, was, uh, he loved weather. That was one of his hobbies. Of course, he loved to fly. And uh, we were at 41,000 feet, and he took that cloud and vertically sliced it uh, all the way across the cloud. He gave me the temperature ranges, the velocity ranges, which, air, which way the air currents were going. He did that vertically. Then he sliced it horizontal all the way to the ground. To this day, I could still draw it for mm, you. But yeah. he was, here I was a young engineer in my probably young early 30s. And, uh, but he took that much time. That took probably, probably 30, 45 minutes of time. Just he and I, we were the only two passengers on the plane. But he would take just as much time with a young man as he would, uh, as he would a whole. But that was just, just typical of how articulate he was and how he could share his knowledge mm-hmm. and how much he enjoyed. Yeah doing that that's so cool. but that was typical you talked about just a second ago about how he never was harsh with anyone he never criticized anyone and one of the things you told me early on when I first met you is that one of the things that made the Saturn V program so successful was that your team was allowed to fail oh yeah and you were allowed mm-hmm. to make mistakes without being criticized and that's one of your favorite things about working for Porter Von Brown was that you were allowed to make mistakes can you talk a little bit about your design process for the Apollo program, the Saturn V rocket, and how you guys came to the final design that you came to and how his work process helped you along in that? We, uh, uh, at the beginning of the Apollo program, uh, we had the centers already at Goddard and at JPL, uh, and uh, but for the Apollo program, we had to build big test facilities all over this world, all mm-hmm. over the country, we had to build the launch facilities at the Cape. We built our test stands in Mississippi. Uh, we built uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base. Of course, Air Force built that one. Uh, we had to build the Johnson Center uh, and uh, the Kennedy Center. So we had to build literally a facility world of large buildings to uh, to build and test that one. A lot of those facilities we're still using today. Oh yeah, a lot of them. A lot of them we're still using, and uh, but my point is, we had to build a facility, so it took a big team of people, and as well as the people in NASA headquarters. So we've started putting this, the facilities in place. We had to design and build all of these large facilities before we could even start building the rocket. So we had to design the rocket along in parallel to that so you would know what facilities to build. So you, uh, communication was a key thing. So what uh, Von Braun and his team and the other NASA teams built was a group of people in each center that was responsible for their piece of the program. In other words, we were building the Saturn V. Uh, uh, Johnson was building the, uh, the manned capsule. And the other facilities uh, were building small satellites. And so what that we had was design groups that had team members from each facility. And they were called working groups. 
those working groups, you would have a mechanical group, an instrumentation group, a propulsion group, an avionics group. And those groups had representatives from each of the centers. They would meet regularly and look at the interfaces, look at the requirements, and keep everybody posted. And that was the way we kept the program focused, was through these uh, working groups. Mm -hmm. They were absolutely mandatory. There are other things called interface control documents, ICDs. That's the interface between the, the say the S1C, the first stage, and the second stage, the second stage and the third stage, uh, the interfaces between all the avionics, or everywhere the uh, electrical plug or a, a structural joint had to come together, you had to have an interface because there's two people building the stuff on either side. Yeah. And the ICDs were our communication tool. And those were a lot of the products of these uh, working groups. So there were literally hundreds of people involved in these, in these working groups. Now back to the point you were making about uh, those of us that were responsible for building the hardware, uh, we were building stuff we'd never built before. Mm. And uh, uh, no one else had. And so consequently, we'd make some mistakes and we would test things until they failed. Uh, just to know, make sure they, they had the capability to take the loads and the temperatures through the mission. And uh, so those uh, documents were very well controlled. And the, uh, but when the, the, the point you were asking about, when if, if I lost, if I had a piece of hardware that failed, the Von Braun team, that whole, he had about 15 lead men that ran all the labs. And uh, we reported to that team uh, quarterly. Every project came to that team and said, here's what we finished this, this, this quarter. Here are the problems we've had. Here's what we plan to do next quarter. And that was another way Von Braun ran the whole, controlled the whole program. He stayed knowledgeable of every piece of hardware uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the program. But uh, in, in those kind of things, you would have failures. And never once did I have a failure that he criticized me or talked down to me. Uh, he said his question was, do you know why it failed? And do you know how to fix it? Mm. And, and, if, and if you knew those two, he would, he, would, he would only offer you help if you asked for it. But he, was, uh, he, he cut you a lot of slack, and that was true for all engineers and, uh, and managers. But he kept up with you for, in your progress, and if you were getting behind, he would help you. That's so cool. And you mentioned multiple times about the fact that you guys were building something that had never been built before. And the right. magnitude of this project... Um, was there a buzz going around about the idea of space travel in that period? What was it like to live in that period of time and be a part of something that no one had ever done before? Uh, let me let me go back even even further. Uh, before the Apollo program, when uh, when I joined there in the Army, we were building the red the Redstone rocket, which was a five hundred five hundred mile missile, and we were building the Jupiter, which was a fifteen hundred mile missile, mm -hmm. and. Uh, that was our army, and uh, as soon as we uh, NASA was formed, then that whole Von Braun team, virtually, uh, not all, all of it, over half of it, 
moved over to NASA, and then a, a, the group that stayed continued the, the work for the Army. So uh, my first jobs were, I was, uh, uh, we were launching the first satellites that we'd ever built. And a satellite at that time was, uh, was really a dream in our eye. Mm -hmm. We never put up a satellite. The Russians, unfortunately, put up the first one. But just, just to make the point, we had a notion that communication satellites would be a good idea. Now, this is in uh, the early 60s. Uh, we moved over to NASA in uh, late 59 and early 60s. And our job in Huntsville at that time, the, the, the group that I was working with, we bought the uh, Thor and Atlas missiles from the Air Force, and we would fly our NASA satellites on those. And my job was to integrate the spacecraft with the launch vehicle. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got to work with all of NASA's payload and scientific people, as well as the uh, our Air Force people. And it was a, a good experience. But when, uh, uh, just to make the point, we had a notion that a communication satellite w would be a good idea. There wasn't any such thing. And to prove the concept, we built a container. It was about three feet in diameter. Grumman up in New York built this uh, balloon, and what it was, it was about a, uh, it was a balloon about a hundred feet in diameter, and it was really built out of aluminum foil. And we folded it up, put it in this container, put it up, uh, and launched it uh, about 150 miles up. Then opened it up, inflated it. And we took a radio signal from the West Coast and bounced it off of it and, and signaled back down to the East Coast. And that's how we proved that you could do a communication satellite. Uh, you, that's, that's about as basic. But that was big stuff back then. But back then, it was real. And, but nobody else was doing it. And uh, to your point, virtually we built the, the mariners, the rangers that went to the moon the small spacecraft. We built uh, weather satellites. One of the one of the most complicated ones we launched was called a Nimbus satellite, uh, and it would it would look back at the Earth and uh, look at the clouds from the. Uh, we built one for the uh, Canadians. Launched one for the Canadians that looked at the top of the clouds. So we were. That's how basic, really, uh, climatological work was. Mm -hmm. It was really a kind of a dream in a maiden's eye at that time. Uh, but, uh, but our challenge was, and Von Braun convinced us we could do it. Everything that we took on, he, was, he convinced us that, that we could be successful in it. And he expected you to be that way. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but he, he led you. He didn't push you. Right. Now, can you talk a little bit about, obviously, you got to watch that first Apollo launch mission happen, and then the first men on the moon mm -hmm. later on. Can you talk a little bit about the emotions you felt when you saw that first Apollo mission be successful and then us finally put man on the moon? There was, uh, of course, we had, uh, we had worked on the Apollo. Uh, we started uh, in um, about 66 or 67. And, um, uh, well, really, it was a little earlier than that. But when the president came up with the thing that we're going to put a, put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. 
That wasn't but seven years. Right. <laughs> and, and uh, We forget that sometimes. That's right. It was right. a very small timeline. That's right. And, uh, and literally, we built, the, we, like I said earlier, we had to build those facilities before we could even build the, the, uh, the Apollo spacecraft. I mean, Apollo uh, launch vehicle. But uh, it was such a giant leap for, uh, because we'd gone from a few hundred thousand pounds thrust to millions of pounds of thrust mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, in, one, in one swell foot. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a big step. But uh, we were convinced we could do it. And we never took on a job all my career that we weren't convinced we could do it. And it was, uh, it was such a, it was a real challenge, but it was so gratifying. But I remember when, uh, when we launched Apollo uh, and uh, when he landed on the moon, I went out that night and just stood there and looked at the moon. It was, it was, it was really gratifying <clears throat> to realize that, and I knew the guys that, that were doing it because I'd worked with them. I saw them a lot. We saw the astronauts a lot. Yeah. And, uh, to, to think about putting a man up there and having him walk on the surface of the moon was, uh, even to those of us that were in it up to our elbows, it was still, a, it was still very gratifying. That's so cool. Now, after the Apollo program, you went on to work on the shuttle program, correct? Mm -hmm. Right. You were in charge of the, the, the fuel tank program right. for the shuttle program. Can you talk about why... We shifted from the Apollo program to the shuttle program and the differences between those two programs? Sure. The, the Apollo program was all expendable hardware. When you launched, you used it up. Uh, and we wanted to have a, uh, a launch uh, capability to where you could launch frequently, carry pretty sizable payloads uh, up, I mean, in tens of thousands of pounds, uh, and do it repetitively and do it fairly frequently. Uh, and uh, we went, looked at several things, and the, the shuttle, as you know it, was the one that, uh, was the one that uh, won out. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, it was, we only, uh, we, we still uh, did, got rid of the expendable hardware. So the, uh, the only thing that was, uh, that was expendable was the fuel tank. Uh, and uh, I ended up uh, as the first project manager for that. Uh, it, we were building it, we were building the first stage uh, in, uh, I mean, the uh, orbiter was being built by Rockwell out on the West Coast. And uh, we had built the first stage of the Saturn V at our facility called Michoud Facility in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had a big plant. We had a plant there that were 42 acres. That's 2 million square feet under one roof. Oh, my goodness. And it's air-conditioned. Wow. And, and, and it was built in World War II. So that building has been there for a long time. And NASA, like I say, took it over uh, in the uh, early part of the Apollo program to build the first stage of, of the Apollo vehicle there. And then... Uh, when the Apollo program was over, we had to close the facility down. So I, my job was to basically put a team together and open the facility back up, staff it, uh, go out and get a contractor to build the uh, external tank. That, 
and it was basically about 27 feet in diameter and roughly 100 feet long. And uh, so it was, it was the only expendable part of the, uh, of the launch of the shuttle program. Now, most people don't know that tank um, kind of self-destructs on its way back into oh, the yeah. atmosphere, right? Can yeah. you talk a, bit, a little bit about that design, why you created it that way, and how you came to that design? Yeah, what we were after, it was expendable, so you wanted it to uh, have, be very light. You wanted it to be as light as you could get it because the lighter it was, the more payload you could carry up because the orbiter uh, engines obviously start at liftoff. All three of the orbiter engines start at liftoff, and it's getting fuel from the tank. So it carries it literally almost to orbit. You're very near orbital speed when you burn out all of that uh, fuel and the uh, and turn the rocket loose. And uh, most of the of them, if you look at the orbital, the, I mean the launching tra trajectories, most of the tanks came back in to the Indian Ocean, which is, the, and that was by design because a few of the major pieces of structure would survive, but most of it would melt coming back into the, uh, uh, to the atmosphere. So you wanted to uh, uh, put it in the least dense popul populated part of the oceans. And uh, the Indian Ocean was what we picked, and that's a lot of the trajectories were designed to, uh, to drop it there. That's so cool. Now, the shuttle was used for many things, but one of, one of its main purposes throughout the 80s and 90s was putting together the Hubble telescope and servicing it, correct? Oh, yes. And you were also the project manager of the Hubble telescope. You became the project manager in 1983. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about the Hubble telescope and what you learned through that process of designing and launching the Hubble telescope? The Hubble, to me, is still one of the most remarkable things that we have done, uh, we NASA uh, has done. Uh, the, uh, the notion was that uh, we wanted to build, a, and this is the science community, uh, wanted to build as large a telescope as you could get uh, and put it in orbit uh, and, and also have the capability to go back and repair it and service it. So it was put up at an altitude that was comfortable for shuttle, uh, and it was designed uh, pretty much to fill the shuttle. We built it just as large as we could uh, because it had to ride in the shuttle. So it had a, meter, uh, a mirror roughly about eight feet in diameter, and it weighed about 20,000 pounds. Uh, and it was about uh, about 50 feet long. So mm. it was a pretty sizable piece. It was the largest telescope, obviously, we had ever built at that time. And uh, uh, what amazed me, uh, uh, let me before I say that, uh, the, and the way the shuttle, that telescope program was run, it, uh, the, the, the Hubble program was run out of Goddard Space Flight Center, which was the science center for it. Uh, and Marshall uh, designed and built the telescope itself mm -hmm. with requirements from the science community and, uh, and Goddard. And we had a science working group that was very interested, uh, and it had the top uh, cosmologists from around the world. There was one from Europe. And one thing about uh, a lot of people don't realize 
the Hubble was really the first major international program that we ever that. built. Wow. Uh, we, uh, we, when we started it, uh, the Europeans were interested, and uh, we've struck an agreement. Uh, we had uh, national agreements uh, with them. They were provided 10% of the cost of the development of the shuttle, I mean, of the Hubble. And uh, for that, they get 10% of the viewing times. So that was the trade. And uh, my first, some of my first experiences was going to Europe and sitting down with the members of the 11 countries that were contributing to it. For, in other words, if, if they were putting in a million dollars, it wasn't dollars. They built a they built million dollars of hardware. Mm. So it put the hardware spread out all over Europe which made the job a lot harder to manage, but it turned out to about be, they, worked, they wanted it to be so successful, they weren't hard to work with uh, at all. Uh, I learned a lot, of, a lot of World War II history between the Germans and the <laughs> British and the French. I imagine so. These meetings, because they were all in the meeting. Yeah, and, a lot and they of them, all had a different perspective, right? They all had a different perspective, and they, a lot of the Germans wouldn't talk in front of the French but they would after dinner. So uh, I, I got all the information I need, but my point is uh, it was an international program, and, 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 and it worked, worked good. That didn't make it that much, uh, uh, that much harder. But uh, the, the, the thing that amazed me the most, we designed the Hubble to be accessed by astronauts. They could pull out these great big uh, these instruments were about the size of a phone booth. Most of them would might weigh six or eight hundred pounds. So one crewman would take that instrument out, and maybe hand it to another one, take another instrument, and plug it in in orbit. Mm-hmm. And that uh, it was designed to to do that. But the thing that amazed me most was we had five servicing missions, and uh, each one of them got more complicated as we went. And what amazed me is we had uh, one servicing mission where the astronauts, we needed to change out some PC boards and some instruments in the spacecraft. They actually took little bitty number six screws, took those screws out in these great big pressurized gloves, and they maintained those, captured those screws took the plate off, took the PC boards out, put them in, and put that plate back on, never lost a human screw. And to do that in, in orbit in those big gloves, it just blows my mind. I can't even build a bicycle without lifting a screw, right? <laughs> and so and it's, a, it, it's I still, but, but uh, the, that was the thing I think that probably amazed me most was how meticulous and how detailed they could get uh, on orbit, and and the, the the upgrade that they did to it, those five servicing missions, is the reason the thing lasts thirty years. It was designed to last ten. That was our requirement. Uh, because of the shuttle accident, we sat on the ground uh, for three years. Mm-hmm. So uh, technically, three years of the ten years that the hardware was built for was gone. Now, we did do upgrades, but I would say probably 70% of the Hubble is still the original hardware 
and it's still working after 30 years. Still taking photographs now. And phenomenal photographs. Yeah. Now, volumes of photographs have been yeah. published. I've looked on Amazon. There are beautiful books. Oh, yeah. Are there any favorite photographs of yours? Uh, I think my favorite one is the, um, is the Stellar Cloud. Uh, it's called the, uh, well, I'll tell you the name of it in a minute. Uh, it's where, where uh, stars are born. It's these big columns, mm -hmm. and they've got little red dots on them, and those red dots keep growing from inside the cloud. They get big enough, they drift off and make a star. I mean, to me, that process is just amazing. God's whole creation is, a, is one of my favorite subjects. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, I still am I'm amazed at at the meticulous it is, but yet how big it is. Absolutely. And, and how detailed things are happening every day. Stars are dying. Uh, the black holes are eating up a bunch of them, but uh, more black holes are being created. So it's a, it's a very evolutionary process, but yet it's, it, he planned it to begin with. Mm -hmm. It didn't just evolve. He had to create it. Yeah. It's so cool. And, and I've heard you talk about multiple times about how Hubble, the photographs that Hubble is taking, is proof of how creative of a God we were. Oh, yeah. We're just learning the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Hubble is just, uh, is just one of them. But we've got so many variations of how to look at the universe and gamma ray and x-ray and uh, invisible light, which Hubble is. But you have, if you don't understand all of those, because you can look at one object, and it may be transmitting invisible, it may be transmitting an x-ray, it may be transmitting in gamma ray, and you can't understand the whole thing if you don't look at each one of those pieces. Right. So a lot of the pictures you see now are combined x-rays and uh, and visible light, and uh, when you do that, you start seeing the whole object. But otherwise, you're just looking at parts of it. Man, I can't even begin to wrap my head around that. It's just so much to think about. Mm -hmm. Now, one last thing. Space travel has changed. Um, when I was in college, the shuttle program was retired, so we no longer yeah. have the shuttle program, and now it's become a private industry mm -hmm. and SpaceX is launching rockets it seems like almost every week now what do you think the future of space travel looks like uh, I think you'll be there'll be there'll be government leadership in it uh, and uh, but I think a lot of it will be commercial mm -hmm. we're just seeing the the front end of that let me give you an analogy of why I think we're just seeing the front end uh, for your time back in World War two we learned how to build airplanes, and the government did. If you look at the quality and the quantity of airplanes we built in the B-27s and the B-17s and the B-29s, and as well as all of the fighter planes and cargo planes, in World War II, uh, there weren't, at the end of World War II, there weren't many uh, aviation contractors. Mm -hmm weren't many airlines. We only had one or two. So you, you think about now, at the, in, in 1945 to the 48 time frame, we started converting from a government 
design military airplane industry to a commercial industry. And look at the commercial industry since the 60s. It's blown up. So my point is, the same thing will happen to space travel. We're just at the front end. We're kind of at the end of the World War II. We're the, air, the commercial people beginning to get involved. And I think that will continue to grow. And that will be a, that'll be a win-win for everybody. And NASA can go, hopefully, and concentrate maybe on going to Mars. Yeah, that was my next question is there's a lot of talk about getting to Mars. What do you think it will take for us to get to Mars? Uh, it would, uh, you need uh, the uh, SLS vehicle that's being built. You really need a larger launch vehicle, and that's what NASA uh, is doing. But it takes so long to get there. It takes months and mm -hmm. uh, months to get back. So it's a, it's a very long commitment to physical human beings. Uh, if we can build a nuclear stage for on orbit, that will take, you can cut that trip instead of months, you can cut it down to weeks. So it would be a lot easier to put men and equipment on Mars, or, or if you want to go back to the moon, I kind of have mixed emotions about going back to the moon. There's still things that we can learn there, and uh, might, we might ought to do that some, but, uh, and there's some logic for going from a lunar orbit to uh, to Mars, but uh, uh, I think uh, I think eventually uh, we'll get to Mars, and, and I trust we'll put m people there. Uh, and I think a lot of that even may end up being commercial too, before it's over with. Well, there's just so much more to explore, isn't there? Oh, it is. Just those are just the close ones. And the future's so exciting. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to. Talk about your story, talk a little bit about space, and talk about what you learned while you worked for NASA. My pleasure, and thanks for your interest. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Jim is such a cool guy. Would you please help me share this content with others by subscribing and leaving a comment wherever you listen? It would mean the world to me. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to being with you next week on Undercover Influencer.